The message I want to bring to you today, I, it is amazing how God works, will tie well with what Mr. DeVildis gave. I, I struggled whether or not to give this message. I gave it in the local area, I changed it slightly some weeks ago. Several people came to me and said, you really need to give that to Feast because there's a lot of people dealing with a lot of things. And last night I was up till one, I, I, was, I was sort of changing my mind and then I just was inspired around 12 or so to just go back and and, and finish it and, and bring it to you. So I'd like to begin with telling you a little story of my life. I'm going to get a handkerchief out here in case I need it. <clears throat> my wife and I have four sons and one daughter. Uh, two of our sons are now married, so we're actually adding daughters-in-law, which is a wonderful thing to have. Uh, we actually had a sixth child, Naomi, who is Nicole's uh, twin sister, and she was diagnosed uh, shortly after birth with cernicterus, which is basically in the family of uh, medical conditions known as cerebral palsy. The last Feast of Tabernacles with her was right here in this building in Snowshoe, West Virginia in 2010. She would be gone seven months later. Uh, she died... <clears throat> Bear with me. She died unexpectedly at home in the spring of 2011 at age four and a half. Her heart just stopped. My oldest son at the time was 16, and all of our children obviously were younger. <clears throat> but what I want to share with you is the four and a half years of her life, the four and a half years of our life as a family. Our family's life was challenging, to say the least. So I'd, I'd like to share some things with you. It, it will help to illustrate where I'm going. We had therapists in and out of our home multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times every day, trying to help her with her development. There were doctor's appointments, or treatment centers that she needed to be at. We lived uh, north of Columbus, and there were trips to Columbus, trips to Cincinnati, trips to Toledo, trips to Michigan, uh, hours away um, to go to various places to seek treatment for her. The costs that were associated with many of those treatments weren't even covered by medical insurance. And so we would, uh, over the course of four and a half years, exhaust every means of financial resources that we had. And I don't know of a parent that would not do the same thing for their child, uh, so I'm not trying to boast. I, I think all of us would do the same thing. But the costs were heavy, and uh, we did what we could. We only had one vehicle at the time. We were cutting any possible expenses we had. We sold one of our vehicles, and we were down to one vehicle, our, our little Chevy Venture minivan. I, this sounds crazy, but I actually teared up when, they finally, when we finally got rid of it and they towed it away uh, because we'd been in so many places and put so many miles on that and it had so many memories wrapped up in that car. It was sad. To, it was weird to be emotional over a car. But, uh, but by the time we got rid of it, uh, and this again shows God's hand in, in our lives, uh, it had well over 200,000 miles on it. 
Uh, it only ran on five cylinders because I didn't have the money to fix it, and I, and I couldn't fix it myself because of the cylinder that was out was on the back side of the engine. I couldn't get to it. Gas gauge didn't work for about three years, the last three years that we had it. So we just had, I'm not, probably not the only one that's done this, right? You, you fill up your gas tank, you reset the odometer, and you know that you only can go so many miles before you're out of gas, and you got to, so that's what we did for three and a half years, so we didn't run out of gas. It always started, it always got us where we needed to be, it never broke down on us. It was the little engine that could, and it was amazing all the places that it took us. My job at the time, I was a regional supervisor and brokerage supervision for J.P. Morgan Chase. It allowed me a fair deal of flexibility uh, uh, in that there were many days my wife would, because again we had one car, she would drive me to work at 5, 5.30 in the morning, drop me off so she could get back home, get the kids ready, load them up, head in the van, and off they'd go for the day. It could be Michigan, Toledo, wherever it happened to be go where they had to go, see the therapists, the OTs, the PTs, and all this, and then circle back around and usually get back and pick me up from work 7, 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, uh, and then we'd go home and we'd repeat that the next day. When Naomi was receiving hyperbaric oxygen therapy, that was in Toledo. Uh, there was a family there that owned a, a clinic, and you know it was two hours from our home. Treatments were four weeks at a time, uh, and, and it, was, it was like... I think if I recall, it was like $5,000 each time. Um, so I would drive the family up, drop them off on a Sunday night, and go back home. I'd work through the week. I'd go back on Friday, pick them up. We'd head to Michigan, visit our family there, and, uh, and our congregation there. Mr. Phelps was speaking of Ms. Lenore Houghton, who I, I know very well. We, we attended there. We'd spend the Sabbath and Sunday there, and on Sunday I'd head back home, drop the family off in Toledo, and head back south to Columbus, and we'd do that for four weeks. The family that ran the clinic, uh, they were so lovely, they just, because we couldn't afford to, to find housing, they said, well, just come live with us. And so my wife and kids would stay with them in a farmhouse, and then they would just drive my wife over to the clinic for any of these treatments. Our daughter had to be held almost constantly. Her condition, there, she had a condition that she would either go high tone or low tone. If you don't know what that is, the best way I can describe it is a child that goes high tone. is like a, a child with a startle re reflex when they go like that. Or low tone is they can't even support themselves. And so she had to be held constantly. Uh, my wife and the boys would usually rotate through the day, caring for her and holding her and watching over her. Um, I would usually take over when I got home from When I would get home from work, I'd usually have to work on a sermon or something else that I had to get done. And then usually my wife would go to bed. The boys would stay up till 10 or 11 or 12 whenever Dad got done with what he had to do. And then I'd take over. And I'd sit with her until about 1 or 2 in the morning, and then finally I'd go to bed. And sometimes she would sleep a little bit, maybe an hour or two. I'd kind of lay down in bed with her. And, but when she woke up, then Julie took over, and uh, she'd get up with her uh, in the middle of the night so I could get at least a few hours sleep, so I could get back up again at 5 or 5.30, and the day would repeat itself. That was our life. That was our life. I share this background with you to help you understand what I'm about to say. There are periods in our lives, all of us, when we have these burdens. And during this period of our life, I would often explain to individuals that would ask me, and I never really got into all these details with people because it, it was our life, it wasn't theirs. But I would explain it this way. <clears throat> 
Naomi was not a burden. But life was burdensome. I hope you know the, know the distinction there. She wasn't a burden when we left her. Life was burdensome. And I imagine if I went around this room, we would all could share stories of times in our life when we were burdened beyond what we think we can handle. Many of you, I'm sure, could share similar experiences. Mr. DeVilbis touched on things. Mr. Phelps shared stories. Times in our lives when you feel that you are burdened beyond anything you think you can handle. Days when you hate the thought of getting out of bed because you don't know when it's going to end. You feel like you're just going through the motions and there's no end in sight. You don't want to go to work, don't want to go to school. You just, you wake up and it's just, here we go again. And it's one day at a time, one step at a time. It's during those difficult periods in our lives when we try to reconcile what we're really feeling with what we think the Scripture's telling us we should feel. Join me in Philippians chapter 4. This is a Scripture I go to because it was one I struggled with during that period in in my life, in our family's life. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. I would pause in this verse. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And I would read that, and it didn't often sit very well with me because I was not content. I didn't like life the way it was. I certainly didn't like my daughter's condition being what it was, and I had a hard time being content in that state. I I never argued with God. we, We never argue with God. I pleaded with God. I beseeched God. I begged for understanding. I pled for mercy, for healing, and all those things. But content I wasn't. And I used to look at that scripture and stare at that, and think, how can we be content in whatever state? I would look at that and I would say to myself, what it's saying is just, you know, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> Deal with it. But I hope we'll see as we go through today, it's not at all what Paul was saying. You know, in times past in the church, people were often judged unfairly or criticized as a mis- from a misapplication of this. People would believe that every aspect of your life should be fine. You should be content in everything if you're right with God. We, we didn't really say it that way, but we sometimes treated people that way. It's that old false doctrine of health, wealth, and prosperity. If you're close with God, you're going to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And if you're not healthy and wealthy and prosperous, there must be sin in your life. Some people believe that. I once heard a member say something, this is a paraphrase, I don't remember the exact wording, but it it stuck in my mind. A converted Christian should never be depressed about anything. If you're depressed, it must be a lack of faith, and you have to get over it. You could change that and fill in the blanks. 
a converted Christian should never fill in the blank, get fired from your job, be sick, be depressed, be discouraged, get cancer. Because if you fill in the blank with one of those, it must be a lack of faith. You need to get over it. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, I know how to be abased, I know how to be abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things. All things. What do the burdens we bear in life today have to do with the millennium? The actual burden themselves may have nothing to do with the millennium at all. How we handle the burdens of life do. What life lessons can we learn today? I've titled the sermon, Casting Your Burdens. Casting Your Burdens. There are many aspects of the Feast of Tabernacles that, and what it pictures, which we've already touched on. I'm not going to turn there. I'll just run them off to you because we've already covered them. Isaiah 11 talks about the nature of animals being changed, the nature of mankind and human nature itself being changed, the earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord. We've already touched on these themes. Amos 9 speaks of abundant prosperity, and we've covered that as well. When the plowman shall overtake the, the reaper, the mountains shall drip wine. And of course, Isaiah 2, verse 4, speaks of peace. When they'll beat their swords and the plowshares, and neither shall they learn war anymore. And of course, one of the major themes is ruling with Jesus Christ. And we know the feast pictures that time in the future when those that have prepared themselves now, which is what we're doing, with each and every holy day as we remember and we rehearse and we repeat, where we're preparing ourselves to reign with Jesus Christ in the millennium, to assist him with governing and teaching, teaching people at that time the way of truth. But peace, prosperity, the change of human nature, the change of beings is not going to be instantaneous. It's not going to be instantaneous. Day one of the millennium will consist of people who will have just lived through probably the most traumatic time in their lives and probably in the time of human existence ever. The return of Jesus Christ is called the Day of the Lord in our Bibles. The Day of the Lord, which is, if you don't know that, it's going to be like a year long. It's a phrase we have this Day of the Lord. Isaiah 34, verse 8, if you want to go there briefly. The Day of the Lord and says, for, this, for it is a day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense. And we know it supported some of the trumpet plagues the last five months or longer so it's going to be a long period of time and they're going to come through that Christ is going to return and establish his kingdom they're going to be refugees of war beat down suffering and then the millennium begins do you think they're going to feel discouraged depressed beat down burdened Are you going to come along and just say, suck it up, buttercup? No, we're not going to do that. What we experience in this life is preparing us to have the empathy and the tools to teach people coming through that how to move forward 
Our Bibles give us instruction on handling burdens. Why would he give us instruction on handling burdens if we weren't going to have any? We'll see here in a moment. Is it possible that our burdens that we bear exist to prepare us, to teach people coming through that day of the Lord? Matthew chapter 11. In a familiar passage in Matthew 11, Jesus provides interesting instructions to his disciples. Jesus here is speaking to people who are trying to do what was right, but were finding the tasks that were being imposed upon them to be impossible. They were driven to weary, they were weary and worrisome and, and despair, and they were despondent and they were burdened. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28, break into the context, and he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus would say in Matthew 23, we won't go there, but speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees, that they bind heavy burdens hard to bear. They lay them on men's shoulders. And so to the Jew, religion was a thing of endless rules. Burdens, too heavy, too hard to bear. So let's dissect here a little bit what Christ is saying. The word that's used here, heavy laden, is fortizo. fortizo. It means to load up the freight of a ship. It means to overburden, to overload, or to heavily burden. It occurs only twice in the King James here in Matthew 11, verse 28, and also Luke 11. We'll come back here to Matthew, but notice Luke 11. We see that word used over here as well. In this account, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is rebuking the lawyers for insisting on the observance of the tradition of the elders Uh, to which they themselves didn't adhere to. Luke 11, verse 46. And he said, Woe to you also, you lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Barclay's commentary states this. They were experts in the law. They laid upon men the thousand and one burdens of the ceremonial law, but they did not keep them themselves because they were experts in evasion. You know, sometimes we're experts at evasion. Oh, I know know the Sabbath is sunset to sunset, but, right? Or I know God says this, I think it was Mr. Irwiller that talked about things we know but we don't do. Oh, I know, but you could pick an item, things that we know we should do but we don't do because we become evasive. We evade it. We make excuses. But they had become 
experts in evasion. Barclay continues, here are some of their evasions. I'll, I'll share two. To give you a sense of what the people at the time were living under. One was uh, forbidden works on the Sabbath. One of those that was forbidden was tying knots. They couldn't tie knots in ropes uh, of any type. But a woman could tie the knot in her girdle. That was allowed. That was the one evasion, one exception that was allowed. Therefore, if a bucket of water had to be raised from a well, a rope could not be knotted to the bucket. But guess what could be knotted to the bucket? A girdle. That was acceptable. The games men play in their minds to, right, to, to put a law in place and then skirt it. To carry a burden was forbidden. This is another example. But the codified written law laid it down. He who, quote, carries anything, whether it be in his right hand. Now follow me here. Here's the law. He who carries anything, whether it's in your right hand or your left hand or in your bosom, like you might carry a package, right? Or in his shoulders, on the Sabbath, any of those methods, you're guilty. Break the Sabbath. How else, how else do you carry something? Right? I'm thinking those are your options. But he who carries anything on the back of his hand, so I can carry it with the back of my hand, with your foot, with your mouth, with your elbow, with your ear, with your hair, with your money bag turned upside down, between his money bag and his shirt, and the fold of his shirt or his shoe, and his sandal, he's guiltless. These are the kind of rules that they put on people, burden them. Imagine living under that. I think we all would feel pretty burdened in those things. Back to Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Notice again what we read, Matthew 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I think we're all familiar with an ox, oxen being yoked together. We've probably seen pictures. It's pretty familiar. There's a massive wooden beam that they put across the neck of a pair of oxen or a pair of animals, generally oxen, because they have more power and they can pull more. It binds them together so the two together can, tra- can drag a load more efficiently. Uh, they have, those of you that uh, probably farm, understand this, but I think we can all visualize it. The yoke is generally carved from a single piece of wood. So it'll be have a straight across the top, it comes down, and then it has these uh, upside down, like semicircles, where it rests on their shoulders. It's custom fitted <clears throat> to each ox. Um, they'll fit it to its particular shoulders, its shoulder width, the size of the ox that they're using to pull it. Um, and that custom fitting allows them to, the two together, have the strength to pull uh, more than each individually could. In the pairing of oxen to a yoke, a farmer will do one of two things. One is he'll take his two best oxen, yoke them together, or, those, or, or both that are similar, so that one's not pulling ahead of the other. So even if you had uh, an oxen, these two are a little bit less than that one. The two of those together would be better than maybe this one and this one because they would be pulling uh, awkwardly. So he'll put two together of an equal size, equal strength, so that they're pulling uh, more efficiently. A farmer may also, though, have an occasion to take his seasoned ox, his trained one, 
and, and yoke it to an inexperienced one for the purpose of training it, teaching it how to pull. And so that's another way that an, a farmer will pair an ox together so that the younger can learn from the older. What Jesus offers to us in this scripture is not to remove our burdens. I learned this over time. You go through burdens in life and you realize he doesn't say he's taking them away. What he says is take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. He's not offering to remove our burdens, but what he's offering is to teach us how to carry our load, how to carry our burdens and to manage what we have in life. He's offering to put a custom-fitted yoke. He's on one side, and you're on the other. What better teacher could we have to learn from? And he's offering it to you and to me individually. And he says, learn from me. I'm, I'm going to take the lead. I'm going to be pulling most of the load, but I'm going to show you how to carry this burden. Again, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The word for gentle there, praos, means meek, mild, humble, gentle, and the word for lowly means humiliated, depressed, based, cast down, humble, of a low degree. It's exactly what you think it means, to be low. He says if we take his yoke and learn to be like him, we will find rest. Not deliverance, rest. We will find rest for our souls. Wouldn't we rather put our life in his hands, confess our sins, to, to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to take that yoke upon us, to learn to be like him, humble and lowly, and let him take the lead, and we learn from him as he shows us how to carry our burdens of life. And then one day we're going to do that to others. Let me show you how to carry that burden. Let me show you how to carry that load. I once had a pretty sore trial myself, too. <clears throat> Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you how I got through it. Let me help you get through it. Let me encourage you. Stick with me. Learn from me. I'll show you how. That's what Jesus Christ is offering us. Bring our burdens to him. Be yoked with him. Do it his way. And we'll find rest for our souls. <clears throat> Now, in contrast, I'm going to take a diversion here for a moment. There was a gentleman named Meher Baba. He was born in India in 1894. Never knew the guy's name, never knew this guy existed, but you're going to find out how I found out here in a moment. He was a spiritual mystic. He died in 1969, but prior to his death, he had been known for, a, for regularly repeating a phrase that would later gain worldwide popularity or a hit song in 1988 by Bobby McFerrin. And you're probably going, I know that song. Don't worry. Be happy. I hate that song. <laughs> I hate pithy nothing sayings. I just, I just, okay, it's cute, but don't worry, 
be happy. <laughs> when you're in the midst of a trial, when you're under a heavy burden, it's kind of like, just be content. Suck it up, buttercup. Don't worry, be happy. It's not that easy, is it? We, we've been there. You've been there. There's another similar expression that became, uh, I don't know, popular. I first heard it in, in the church around 1990. That's about when I remember first hearing it. And that one was, just let go and let God. Let go and let God. Now, again, it's one of those that sounds cute. And you could build a whole argument behind that. There's, there, you do your part, you bring it before God, you put it in God's hands, and then you, know, you, you go forward. But the problem with it is, is I keep asking the question, what does that really mean, let go and let God? That we don't do anything? Well, I have this thing, a burden, I, you know, I prayed, and that's it. I, I'm not going to do anything else about it anymore. I put it in God's hands, and that's it. Christ didn't tell us that. He said, take on my yoke. We're, we're going to do this together. Don't, don't, don't let go. Don't put it all on me. We're going to be yoked together. He didn't say just take the whole burden, throw it on my back, and just run off and do your own thing. Because if we think, you know, letting go and letting God, it can suggest that when burdened with life, we just do nothing. We let go of everything, and you know, I don't have to worry about it. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this burden I'm in or this trial I'm in. Or even worse, when things go wrong, we blame God because I let go. And I gave it to God. And so it's God's fault. See, that's, that's the danger if we develop this idea of thinking in that way. Christ offers to work with us together. He didn't say just dumping on me. He's offering us a custom-fitted yoke to help us. So again, I don't know where that phrase first started. I, like I said, I first heard it in 1990. I, I just, I don't like, I just don't like pithy sayings. I want substance. God gives us substance. I don't like, you know, give me in the word of God, let me find substance. And so as I would dwell on Paul's comment there in Philippians 4, I would struggle with that because I knew God's word was true. And so my question is, why am I having a problem with being content in the state that I find myself? It was me. I was the problem. It was me. I didn't take on the yoke of Christ. I didn't approach it with, come all who are burdened and heavy laden and take my yoke. I was looking for deliverance. That's my fault. It wasn't God's fault. So the burdens of life that we went through as a family taught a lot of lessons. Burdens you go through in your life teach you a lot of lessons. If you're keeping your mind open and you're looking for them, God will show them to you. And you'll come out of the other side of that with a clear sense of purpose, a better picture of who and what our God is in Jesus Christ. You'll know it in a way you never knew it before. You'll have a faith and a conviction that you never had before from coming out on the other side of it. We sometimes think our Bible contradicts itself. Ephesians chapter 6 but we know the Bible doesn't. You know, don't worry, be happy, let go, and let God. That's not in our Bible, right? Those are things that human beings come up, and they're cute. I get that, but uh, they're not cute when you're going through something. I can tell you that right now. Ephesians chapter 6. Notice 
Notice these contradictions to phrases like, don't worry, be happy, let go, and let God, Ephesians 6. Because again, we, we need to be led by God's word, not by pithy quotes. So when in doubt, pull it out in your Bible and look at what it says. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts. I lost my place of wickedness. I knew what it was, but I want to get back to my place. In the heavenly places, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. This doesn't sound like letting go and just letting God. He says, you take up the armor, and you withstand, and we can know that God will help us. So this isn't just letting go. Stand, therefore, verse 14, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This doesn't, again, sound like letting go and letting God. You and I have work to do. We have to do our part, and God will do his part. We don't even have to think about that. We just know if we do our part, he is going to do his part. That is a promise. And that's why phrases frustrate me at times, because they they really contradict what the Word of God says. Now, again, in fairness to the statement, letting go and letting God, there there comes a time you've done all you can do. It is in God's hands, and you know it is then, yeah, maybe, let go, let God, you've done what you can. But let's be sure that we're, we're not letting go too soon, that we, we've done our part. First Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6, and read two verses, beginning in verse 11. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Doesn't sound like letting go, letting God. Too often over the years, people I've known personally in the church, I know this is going to sound a bit judgmental. I hope you understand where I'm going. Uh, just showed up every week. The congregations that I serve know that I, I use this phrase a lot, so they may chuckle. I will apologize because they've heard it too much, but we don't enter the kingdom of God getting an A-plus in attendance. Oh, God wants you to get an A-plus in attendance. He wants you there every Sabbath, every holy day. He wants he expects you to be there. It's commanded assembly. We're going to hear about that in the Bible study. It's a holy convocation. But if that's all you're doing, great job, A plus in attendance, but that's not it. 
All these verses we've just read are all about us doing something in here. We do our part. God does his part. And when we're burdened, he doesn't say just quit, let go, and turn it over to me. He tells us to keep pushing forward and keep doing what we need to do. Galatians chapter 6. We have an admonition in Galatians chapter 6. Paul will speak twice about burdens. Uh, often people think this, these verses contradict themselves, so let's look at them. They don't, actually. In Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken any trespass, you are a spiritual restorer, such a one, in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Verse 2, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And then verse 4 says, well, let each one examine his own work, that have, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Verse 5, for each one shall bear his own burden. Whoa, wait a minute. Verse 2 says, bear one another burden. Verse 6 says, each one shall bear his own burden. What is it? People often say, that. does that contradict itself? Well, it doesn't, actually. The word in verse 2 for burden is baros. Baros, and it means a heaviness, a weight, a burden, a trouble. Its implication is being weighed down in a heavy, burdensome manner. There is a kind of burden which comes to an individual from what we call the chances, the challenges, and the circumstances of life. You didn't cause it. My daughter was born with a disability. There it is. Yeah, it's just, there you go. But it is a burden. It's burdensome at times to have to carry that. Sometimes our burdens do involve sin. Sometimes. Not always. Other times, it's circumstances in our lives. Things happen. You're driving down the road. You get T-boned. Suddenly, somebody in your family's paralyzed. You now have a, a burden to bear. Before I left for the feast, I was reading an article in Country Living Magazine. I don't subscribe to that because I don't live in the country. I want to, but I don't. I just happened to be sitting, getting my hair cut, and it was there. I was flipping through it. Um, it was in the May 2018 issue by a woman living in Manchester, New Hampshire. She writes this. She writes about having never met her own father. <clears throat> he was drafted in the Army in 1943 uh, when she was one year old and sent to Europe the following year. Her father died in the Battle of the Bulge on December 21, 1944, and she was only two years old. She goes on to share the following words written by her uncle, her father's brother, that he had written in a small memorial book that they had made for their mother um, and gave to her on Mother's Day in 1948. So it would be the author's uncle gave it to her grandmother. And here's what she wrote. I find this interesting. So her uncle writes this, Some lives are great romances that are told in lovely words and charming phrases. Some lives are long and interminable tragedies on the stage of time and of which no one dares to write. Some lives are epic poems written in deeds in the book of years. Some lives are sad. Some are joyful. But most lives are a mixture. And these are more realistic and more worthy 
of belief. We all have a mixed life. We have good days. We have not so good days. We have times of joy. We have times of sorrow, sometimes deep sorrow and the loss of a loved one. Our daughter died in our bed on a Monday morning as I was leaving to go to work. I could relive it. I would break down if I dwell on it too long. I can relive the day almost minute by minute. Most lives are a blend. Bearing up under our burdens helps us to develop a reservoir of empathy for people in their burdens. I can identify with somebody with a child with a disability today in a way I never could before. Before I thought I could. Now I know I can. How? God taught me through a life lesson to have empathy. Burdens provide opportunities to practice virtues that God wants us to learn and to grow in. It's not book knowledge anymore. It's life experience. Burdens invite us to yield to the Holy Spirit, to take on the yoke of Christ that he's offering us. Take on my yoke. He's offering it. And he says, to learn from me. Not for him to take it, but to learn. Ephesians 4 again. Ephesians chapter 4. Notice here in Ephesians chapter 4, what we read, beginning in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Why would he tell us to do that if we didn't have anything to bear? Bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Let's go down to verse 22. That you would put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. And that new man needs to empathize with people in burdens. It is part of our training. We have to be ready to do that. And the best way to do it is to go through them yourself. Sorry. That's the truth of it. I learned things through that life experience. Our whole family did. We've talked about it many times, just different aspects of it. Um, But we all learned and we all grew. And so again, Paul wrote that there's a kind of burden which comes to a person from circumstances in our lives, some that we cause, others that just happen. But what he said was that fulfilling the law, it was fulfilling the law of Christ to help everyone who has a burden to help them carry it. How many have observed uh, things in the local area and, and know there's a need and think to do good but don't do good? Know you could help but don't offer. Think someone else has it covered. He says it fulfills the law of Christ when we put ourselves out there to help. Paul said that if it's sin, 
Where were we at? We were in Galatians, I think. Let me look at my notes here. No, Ephesians 4. I was back in Galatians. What he said back in Galatians, if, if it were sin, the word he used was paraptima. And it doesn't mean deliberate sin. It means a mistake, a sidestep, a slip-up. And he says if a brother has committed that, he says we need to help them get back on their feet. We need to help them get back on the right path. He says if they slip up, it's our duty to get them and to restore them. A whole other probably series of sermons we could do on Matthew 18 and how to apply that. But the word he uses to restore is to thoroughly to repair, to mend them. To help them. When you have a brother carrying a burden, and maybe it is a result of sin, you know, try to help them out. Get them straightened out. And try to get them back on their feet. Barclay says the word can mean the work of a surgeon in removing a growth from a body or setting a broken limb. It's the whole atmosphere of the word lays in the stress not on the punishment, but the cure. Okay, fine. The act is committed. The sin has happened. It's done. Let's get to curing it. Let's fix it. He says, that is taking on that yoke of Christ and being that way to a brother. But there's also a burden. Let's go back to Galatians again. Let's go back and read again. Verse 5, Galatians 6, verse 5, For each one shall bear his own burden. There's also a burden which you and I have to bear ourselves. Sorry, can't help you, and you can't help me. The word that's used there is fortion. So verse 2 is a different word. Verse 5 is fortion. Something carried. It's the cargo of a ship. It's an obligation. It's a word that we use in describing a soldier's pack. You've got to put it on. And carry it yourself. I hate using the word burdens because I'm going to tell you what some of those are. And if we have the right frame of mind, we shouldn't consider them burdens. But it's the word that was described nonetheless. It is a duty of things that you can only do for yourself. And I couldn't help you with them if I wanted to. And you know what they are. Prayer. Bible study. Fasting. Meditation. That's on you. I can't help you with those, and you can't help me. That is a burden each one of us has to carry ourselves. I like the word obligation better. It's a different translation of the same word. It's our, often jokingly say, it's what we signed up for. It was the fine print when we got baptized that I'm willing to carry this pack. That's my obligation. That's, that I bear myself. You can't, you can't help me with that even if you wanted to. You can't pray the prayers I need to be praying. You can't study the Bible for me. You can't meditate to increase my understanding. You can't fast to humble me. I have to do that. Paul says these are burdens, obligations, fortune that each one of us carries. It is our responsibility. It's kind of that other side of we don't get the A-plus in attendance. We have to do these. No one can do them for us. Back again to Matthew chapter 11, look again at verse 30. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we're yoked with Christ, we're not free of the burdens. They're just lightened up a little bit. He teaches us how to live a life that shifts the heavy lifting to him. If we learn from him. And the only way we're going to learn from him is to study God's word, to know what he's revealing to us about ourselves, our circumstances, our burdens, and, and how to work through them and what we're to learn from them. <clears throat> Notice what the psalmist wrote in the 55th Psalm, Psalm 55. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Psalm 55 and verse 22, I'll just read one verse. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. You shall never permit the righteous to be moved. The word or burden used here implies something that God has given you to bear. He did place it on your shoulders. But he's not suggesting you bear it alone. It's probably one of the biggest lessons we learn from burdens of life is where do we go for help? Where do we go for help? Being yoked with Christ, as we read in Matthew 11, is the only way that we'll be able to bear each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ, as we read in Galatians chapter 6. Again, let me repeat that. Being yoked with Christ is the only way we'll be able to bear each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. So in essence, I'm counting on you. And you need to count on me. We're here for each other. We need to be there for each other. But it depends on each individual doing what they need to do for themselves. When I was listening to Mr. Miller the other day, I kept thinking of a phrase that I probably beat to death when I was in New England. I'll work on me, and you work on you. And we each individually grow and then your family grows, and then the church grows. And Mr. Miller basically summarized the same thing. It's about each one of us individually taking our burdens, being yoked with Christ, and knowing that our brother's doing the same. And the end of the matter is the church is stronger for it. We don't worry about each other. I can't fix you. You can't fix me. But I can't fix me if I yield to God in my life and Christ. You know, consider, if you will, how does God reveal himself to you or to me as your healer? Think about that. How would God convince you that he's your healer? Wouldn't you have to have something in need of healing? It's only logical. How does God reveal himself as your provider? You're in need. You know, that little engine that could, that little Chevy Venture, I probably could do an ad for Chevy for that little vehicle. But through all of that, that was one thing God blessed us with. Nothing broke on that. Like, nothing that stopped us from going where it had its issues. 
But it kept us praying about that little car. Oh, I changed the brakes here and there and did things like that that I could. Um, but we didn't have the money to do the expensive repairs. Yeah. I used to get frustrated over the gas gauge because it's a simple little sending unit in the gas tank, but you've got to put the vehicle up, drop the gas tank to get to it. I was going to drill a hole through the floor just to get to it, but then I thought it might hit the gas tank, and then that wouldn't be good. <clears throat> but how does God reveal he's your provider unless you're in need of something to be provided for? And so he sometimes puts you through those. So that, and he says, come to me, ask me, and I'll show you I'm your provider, in case you didn't know that, or your healer or your deliverer in a trial. He says, just ask me. Let, let me show you who I am. Let me show you who your God is and what he can do. Just ask me so I can reveal myself to you. And yeah, I put you in that trial because I want to show you who I am, that you would come and ask me and I can reveal myself to you. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That particular time in my life, I learned a lot. I probably learned more later, but through it, I, as we all do in, in trials, we're looking for answers, we're looking for understanding. Second Corinthians chapter 1. I'm halfway through my notes, and... And we're about the middle of the day, so that's not a bad thing. We're almost there. Second Corinthians chapter 1. I, I'm going to probably have to... I'm not going to say speed up, because those that are in the congregations I serve knows what that means, and it's not... They tell me all the time, slow down. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning of verse 1, notice how Paul speaks to this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be, verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Why would he say that if we didn't have any? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation, and our hope for you is steadfast. Because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, <clears throat> excuse me, so also you will partake of the consolation. We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. He wanted to die. I never got to that point. That's something I don't know. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and who does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. He speaks of being burdened beyond measure to the point of wanting to die. That, brethren, is a burden. I was never to that point. So I, 
I take encouragement that Paul suffered and endured. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us instructions in Matthew chapter 6 to not worry about life. <clears throat> Matthew 6 and verse 25. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? <clears throat> verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? We won't continue reading here for the sake of time, but the lesson here is that God will supply our needs. He won't supply our wants. Well, he might, just to see if you can handle it. He will supply our needs. <clears throat> My wife and I learned through that period of time that God always provided for our needs. God always provided for our needs. We never missed a meal. The car never broke down. We never ran out of gas. There was always enough money in the bank. He always supplied our needs. And we thanked him for that. Oh, yeah, we would have wanted this or maybe that, but he didn't ever say he'd give you those. He did say supply our needs. In the 68th Psalm, I'll just read this to you. Well, before we go on, let's just back up one second. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 11. In the model prayer, notice what we read. Give us this day our daily bread. Not this month, our month's supply, or this year. He says, give us this day what we need for today. I learned that in the course of four and a half years. Better than I ever knew it before. In the 68th Psalm, I'll read this. <clears throat> it's out of the NIV, which I don't often quote, but sometimes it's, it's good. Not often, sometimes. 68th Psalm, verse 19. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens, if we take them to him. He's trying to see if we want him in our lives. Just ask me, he says. But the struggle for many of us is often our burdens are resulting of wanting more. We, our wants become our needs, and those are the kind of burdens where we create our own problems. We get in debt. We, we, we buy stuff we can't afford, and then suddenly we're burdened, and, and, and we go, how did I get here? Well, you know, you're spending more than you have. I used to work as an advisor in a couple different uh, I had offices in two different parts of the city of Columbus, and they were two different segments of people. One were kind of your blue-collar workers, and the others were, I called them pretenders, because they lived in an area. They were driving the Lexus and the Beamers and, and all the, you know, Audis. They had nice clothes, but they were broke. And I only knew that because they talked to me about their finances. You know, the blue-collar ones, you, you know what the, here's, you want to make a million, but you want to have a good life. This is what I learned from all of them, every one of them. I don't care if they made 35000 a year or 65000 a year or 80000 a year. Here's the big secret. They spent less money than they made. That's it. That's the secret. Didn't matter how much money they made, they just spent less. They lived more frugal. They put money in savings. And over time, they accumulated we sometimes make our wants, our needs, and we put burdens on ourselves that God never intended for us, but he lets us make those choices. But we can still go to his word and find solutions if we want. 
You know, many people in Scripture uh, felt burdened at times. Uh, so, you know, we're not in, we're actually in good company. Notice Job. You know, there are several biblical accounts of individuals who uh, were heavy burdened. And we, we know the story of Job, but notice uh, just a couple things. Job 3. Excuse me, verse 11. Again, why did I not die at birth, and why did I not perish when I came from the womb? I've never been in that level of despair. Job was. A little further down, verse 24. For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. You know, if we try to carry our burdens on our own, that's what we'll, we'll endure. We'll have that. We have to seek guidance from God's word if we're going to work through our burdens of life, and we're going to have them. Other parts of Scripture tells us God will give us trials for the perfecting of his saints. <clears throat> you know, in Luke, uh, Luke's gospel account, Luke 21, we'll look at one verse there. He also points out that we can become bogged down with burdens uh, or distractions of life. Luke chapter 21, one verse, Luke 21, verse 34. Luke chapter 21, verse 34, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. You know, some of the worst burdens we bear are mental burdens, where we're, bought, we're just weighed down. Debt is a good example. If you're so far in debt, you can't figure out how you're going to get out of it. That is a burden up here. It's not a physical one that we're carrying on our shoulders, but it's a burden nonetheless. And so Luke provides this warning about getting bogged down Burdened with the cares of life. So again, God will supply our needs, but he's not going to supply our wants. So then, how do we keep from being burdened with the things that we should not? How do we maintain a right perspective? How do we cope with these crushing feelings? First Peter chapter 5. First Peter 5, verse 6. <clears throat> God never allows us to have anything in our life that he doesn't provide an answer for. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him sounds a lot like, take my yoke upon you, right? For he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know, I thought about this in the context of those verses next to each other. You know, if you're weighed down with a heavy burden, you're going to be the one in the back of the herd that's going to be easiest for the predator to catch up to. Your mind's going to be off on things that you're going to be weighed down with. So I find an interesting connection that jumps right to, you know, our adversary. 
Resist him, verse 9, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, there it is, we are going to have burdens, will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Casting all your burdens on him. Hence the title of the sermon. He wants to hear from his kids that he loves. You know, as we've watched our children grow up, and, you know, it's, it's interesting to see as they make decisions on their own, you know, sometimes you're kind of like, oh, just ask. Well, I'd love to give you some input here, right? But you want to let them ask. They want to do it on their own, and it's that trying to let them, because they are, they're adults now. I, I don't have authority over them in that regard, but sometimes you go, oh, you know, just ask me. I, I might save you a few steps here. We have a responsibility in our lives to be sure that we maintain a relationship with God. We take our cares to him, and he helps to direct and help us to work through them. You know, we see here this casting our cares comes from the same man who would fall asleep while waiting to be executed. He'd find him walking on water and then doubting, and yet he learned over time. Remember the verse I read in the beginning, Philippians chapter 4. Let's go there. The one that I personally had a difficult time reading. I'm going to try to read it in context and and kind of move through um, a little bit here. We we should be okay. I might be a minute over or two. Instead of going to Philippians 4 verse 11, let's read it in context. Because usually our biggest problems heresies in the church and misunderstandings of scripture come because we take things out of context and I did I didn't read it in context I got I was discouraged I was frustrated and I had a bad attitude <laughs> yeah I had a bad attitude Ephesians 4 let's begin in verse 4 was I'm sorry Philippians 4 Philippians 4 verse 4 rejoice in the Lord always again I say rejoice let your gentleness be known to all men The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. We heard about anxiousness in the sermonette. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The first instruction he gives to us to keep from being burdened is to rejoice in the Lord. What is one of the reasons we're here? We've heard it mentioned almost every day. We come to the Feast of Tabernacles to rejoice. I won't go there. We've already read it. Leviticus 23, verses 39 and 40. The the word rejoice is salmach. It means to brighten up, to cheer up, to make glad, to have joy, to make joyful, to marry, to rejoice. We come to the Sabbath. We come to every holy day to be in the presence of the Lord the presence of God, to rejoice. The complete word study of the Dictionary of the Old Testament by Baker and Carpenter adds this to this word rejoice. It describes the state of rejoicing and of being happy. It takes on the sense of making others rejoice. Although the word is used of all rejoicing, it is found most often in the Psalms and describes religious and spiritual rejoicing. It is not partying and revelry. 
Let's look at one example, Psalm 19, since it mentioned it's used most often in the Psalms. We'll look at one, Psalm 19. And then we're going to come back to Philippians 4. We rejoice being in the presence of God. That's why we're here. You can't rejoice in being in the presence of God if you're not there on the weekly Sabbath. You're off boating because God's not there. He's with his people. So all these excuses that people make to do things on the Sabbath is confusing to me because God's not there. He calls a holy convocation, a commanded assembly. He says, I'm here. This is where I'm going to be. I'd like to see you. You know, where were you? I was boating. I was whatever it might be. Why do we do this? So I'm getting off on a tangent. I better stop. Psalm 19. We'll look at uh, a couple verses. Beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It is right, it is rejoicing in the heart, as it says, verse 8. It, it happens in here. It isn't partying and revelry. It is rejoicing in the presence of God. It's why he calls us. It's one of the reasons he calls us to the feast, to come out of the world, to leave it behind us and to be here. We need to be here with this mindset of rejoicing in God's presence. Notice Acts, 30, Acts 3, I'm sorry. There's a very encouraging verse here in Acts 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. <clears throat> speaking, of, speaking of repentance, but notice, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come where? From the presence of the Lord. And he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before. Times of refreshing. Isn't that one of the most beautiful aspects of the Feast of Tabernacles is to have times of refreshing in the presence of our God? How many times over the years have people gone home for the Feast and said, oh, am I spiritually refreshed, renewed, reinvigorated? It's because we have come into the presence of God. It is a blessing he gives to us for our obedience. The word for times of refreshing is anapsuxis. Anapsuxis. It means a recovery of breath. You, know, you catch your breath. It means a revival. He wants us to come to the feast and rejoice, to catch our breath, to have an inner rest, to rejoice. The people that make it to the day of the Lord will get to experience that as well. The times of refreshing in the presence of God. And I think when that day comes, day one of the millennium, I think they're going to be ready. And we will be their teachers. And just like we can read the examples we just read of burdens that Paul and Job and others endured, we'll share our stories. And we'll encourage them. And we'll help them and we'll teach them. Rejoicing in the presence of the Lord means we rid ourselves of worry and excessive concern. Winston Churchill was quoted as saying once, When I look back on all these worries, I remember the story of the old man who said on his deathbed that he had had a lot of trouble in his life, most of which never happened. 
If you're a worrier, you know what that means, right? Worry, 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 and it never really happens. Back to Philippians 4, as we move along here, we're just about done. Philippians 4, we're going to wrap up in these, mostly in Philippians 4, as we look at the next step that he mentions. Philippians 4, verse 6. The anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. So he says, pray always. Put everything before God. If you're heavy burdened, he says to pray always. Remember Matthew 6, 25. Don't worry about tomorrow. Worry about today. Ask about today. Pray about today. Let tomorrow take care of itself. I, I lived that for four and a half years, honestly. I, I mean, we did planning, but a lot of it was day to day. A lot of it depended on my daughter's health day by day. And so... You could have a plan, but the plan would change. And you could, but that was life. It just is what it is. The author C.S. Lewis once wrote, we have, all, we have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. Let's make sure that God is number one in our, in our life. Pray always. Put those burdens, take them to him. The third thing he mentions here in Philippians 4, beginning verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, lovely, whatever things are good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Let your mind dwell on that which is right and is good. The things that you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Get out your Bibles. Meditate on God and his ways, and the God of peace will be with you. There's not really much to add to that. The words are pretty clear. What is consuming our thoughts and our mind? We need to be meditating on these things. You can add in your notes, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, reminds us to take every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You know, if your mind's wandering on things, get a hold of that. And lastly, the fourth thing you mention is the one that I struggle with, but in context, it makes sense. I'll, end in, I'll go to the latter part of verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity, not that I speak in regard to need, for I learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound and everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We need to remain positive as we go through burdens of life. You can do all things if you take on his yoke. He's offering it, custom fitted, just for you, just for me. But he's not going to strap you into it. You've got to ask for it. And then be ready to learn from him, because that's what he said. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Brethren, there may be times in your life when you feel it's just too burdensome. We need to remember that the instruction we received from our Savior when he offered not to remove the burdens, but to teach us how to carry them. That's what he's offering us. Matthew 11, verse 29, it said, I'll read it for you again. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. One of the blessings, just one, of being here at the Feast of Tabernacles is that we get to experience a small, small taste, foretaste of the millennium, when the entire earth will finally be able to experience anapsuxis, the times of refreshing by being in the presence of God.